we turn to John chapter 16, and uh, before we read God's word, John 16, let's pray before we come to the word of God. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen. John chapter 16, and we'll read from verses 4 to 15. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where are you going? But because I said these, have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. The express purpose of John's Gospel is not a mystery to us because John himself tells us in John 20 verse 31 but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words John under the direction of God the Holy Spirit has written his Gospel with the express purpose that unbelieving people might come to believe in the Lord Jesus and follow him all the days of their life. And the clarity of that statement by John is more than matched by the mystery that surrounds the actual facts of God, bringing a person to faith in his son. The hymn writer expresses something of that mystery and the place of the Holy Spirit in bringing it to be when he writes, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in him. Jesus said in chapter 3 verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And while, as the Bible makes perfectly clear, the essential elements of repentance and faith are always present in a man or a woman, boy or girl, coming to Christ and being saved. There are distinctives 
in how individuals come to know Jesus. I've often wondered about if there was a, I don't know if you've ever imagined some of the stories that must have happened in, in, in the Bible times. Can you imagine a conversation between the man of John 9, the blind man who Jesus healed, and another healing of a blind man, Bartimaeus, maybe in Mark 10? Can you imagine the conversation between the two? And if you could imagine the two of them talking to one another, the man of John 9 could have said to Bartimaeus, what did you think when Jesus spat on the ground? And Bartimaeus would have said, well, he didn't. Jesus didn't spit on the ground. Or maybe the man of John 9 would go on and say, well, how did you feel then when he made mud pies and he rubbed the potion? How did you feel about that? Jesus never made a, a mud pie for me. How was it when he rubbed your eyes and touched you? He didn't. He didn't rub anything on my eyes. He never touched me. Well, surely, what, well, what happened? How did you feel when he told you to go to the pool of Siloam and wash? And Bartimaeus said there wasn't a mention of the pool of Siloam. Would the man of John 9 say, I'm not sure you actually had your sight ever restored? But both of them were touched, changed, transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. By the dynamic work of God, unique to their situation and their circumstance. Sinclair Ferguson, in a book on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, says, The point is that in the varied work of the Spirit, the psychological and emotional accompaniments of conversion are correspondingly diverse. Therefore, we make a mistake if we get tangled up in our thinking that somehow the way that God would bring a person to faith will be marked by the same psychological, emotional and physiological elements. I always remember one of the, one of the stories that I once quoted here was of, um, I think it was Tim Keller once who preached about the Surgeon General in Reagan's time, a guy called Coot, who used to, um, his wife used to drag him to church. His wife used to drag him to church. And, in, and, the, and before the summer, he was always a bit indignant that his wife had to take him to church. And then by the end of the summer, he suddenly realised, his, his confession was, he suddenly realised that he, he actually wanted to go. And he agreed with everything that, that, that had been said. And he suddenly realised, he said, that, you know, that he is my saviour and he's my lord and everything is true. And I, I told that one afternoon here, and very, very movingly, someone came up to me afterwards and said, James, that's me. That's me. You know, that, that is me. We, we, we all have a different story of faith that by his grace, but one thing is always clear, it's the Holy Spirit's work. Then, what is always present is the work of the Holy Spirit of God, convicting of sin and creating both faith and repentance. And that's, it's just on that thought I wanted to spend a moment or two this afternoon, because it's been pressing on my heart and on my soul in relationship to the work of the Gospel in this place. And Jesus in these chapters in the upper room has a tremendous 
amount to say about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows that his disciples are despondent, they're dismayed, and that he, the prospect of him leaving them. That's why Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. They believed in God, they should believe in him. There was this prospect of a great reunion one day. And Jesus said, you shouldn't think for a moment that when I leave you, I will leave you as orphans. It is actually good. That's what Jesus said. And as we saw in our reading in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Unless I go away, says Jesus, the Holy Spirit will not come. Now why does Jesus say that? This isn't, this isn't because the new age of the Holy Spirit cannot begin until Christ completes his work. Resurrection, ascension, exaltation. In other words, the inauguration of God's reign begun by Christ will be completed by the Holy Spirit. But only after the work of Christ on earth is finished. So in a paradoxical way, it is better that Jesus left. Now that was hard for the disciples to understand. And it is frankly, it is hard for us too sometimes. If only I could walk with him like they did in the first century, then I would believe. Have you, has anyone ever said that to you? If only I'd been there, I would believe. How many of the people really believed? When they had Jesus to see, to touch, to share a meal with. No, actually to see him was not to believe in him. They were scandalised because he looked so ordinary. He was another man. He was a, another first century Jew. And there were plenty of them about, even with the name Jesus. And here he was. He surely could not have been the Messiah. They rejected him. And I think we have to face up to the fact that if we lived in first century Palestine, we probably would have rejected him too. But on the other side of Pentecost, now Christ can be everywhere by his spirit. And we can have more grace than to simply walk physically next to him. He can dwell in us. The Holy Spirit doesn't supply the son, Son's absence. He completes the Son's presence. The Holy Spirit doesn't merely supply the Son's absence. Jesus is gone, you get the Spirit. He doesn't fill the gap so much. He completes the presence. The work of the Holy Spirit is that giant spotlight. J.I. Packer said it so well. About throwing a giant spotlight on you, on me, to show us our sin. The dark places of our heart. And a giant spotlight that we might see the glory of Christ. And so the doctrine of the Holy Spirit teaches us the indispensability of the Holy Spirit for everything in Christian experience. And the Spirit's dwelling place is the church. And it is through the dynamic of God's people, by God's word, that conviction of sin takes place. It's simple and yet profound. And the focus is on verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the sin, the world, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The work of the Spirit is explicitly to convict of sin. It's used in, that word is used in John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That is the same word translated exposed, convict of sin. And the Spirit's work in the world is a convicting work in two primary senses. The work of the Spirit of God is to prove the world guilty, to secure a guilty verdict against it. To prove, like in Romans 1.20, that men and women are without excuse. That is what the Spirit of God does. He presses on the minds of men and women that despite their rebellion, despite the fact they worship the creature rather than the creator, despite the great exchange from the truth of God to a lie, they would eventually, by the power of the Spirit, if they are to be regenerate, be convicted of their guiltiness. And the second element is that he will bring the world's guilt home to individuals by awakening individuals to the consciousness of guilt and sin. And that's of vital importance this, today. We live in, in, a, in, in a day, I'm speaking to someone about it this week, where there's hardly a thing as truth anymore, is there? It's your truth, or it's my truth. And, and the idea of objective truth is actually vanishing. Where the psychological emphasis of the world has been to deny any valid place to the notion of sin and guilt. Certainly there's no need for repentance and forgiveness. The world tells men and women that to feel guilty is wrong. That guilt is false. It is a neurosis. There is no basis in it. So the whole world is opposed to the very thing that the Spirit of God comes to do. The Spirit of God comes to convict the world of sin and the whole world is opposed to that very fact. So if the church succumbs to the world and capitulates to the notions of the world, then it would seek to present a message of the Gospel that has nothing to do with sin and definitely nothing to do with guilt. Because it is capitulated to the very notion which has been so forcibly taught. But if we are, by God's grace, to submit to the inerrant truth of the Word of God, then we'll stand to confront the prevailing culture with a notion that it largely disregards. And the only possibility that any of us would come to face our guilt is the truth taught by the Lord Jesus here in the 8th verse of John 16. When the Spirit comes, this is what he will do. Jesus says he will convict first of all of sin because men do not believe in me. It is interesting because we are essentially taught that we are great. We're taught that we are awesome. That, that you are wonderful, that you are great. And the idea, I'm not really a sinner because I haven't really done anything really bad. 
Jesus says he will convict you of sin because you do not believe in me. If you listen to Jesus on another occasion in John 3 verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There is not a man, woman, boy or girl who will come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of my ability to articulate anything. The only possibility that anyone comes to faith is that the Holy Spirit of God will convict them that they are sinners because they've chosen not to believe in Jesus. So we can cry, Holy Spirit, come and convict these stony hearts of the fact they do not believe in Jesus. Verse 22 of John 8. The Jews said, will he kill himself since he said, where am I going? Where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you know how dramatic that statement is in our pluralistic world? But secondly, the convicted will be in regard of righteousness. Jesus says, because I'm going to the Father. In other words, the Spirit of God is going to convict men and women about the rightness of who Jesus is. That Jesus is both God and Saviour, and Jesus is the only way. The Spirit of God in the same dimension will convict men and women of their total inability to earn or merit their salvation. So you can be sure that when a man, woman, boy or girl comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they're not coming and saying, look what I've done, I've managed to do this, and I've managed to do that, and I've managed to do the next thing. This person, whatever they're doing, is not coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Because when a man or woman comes to faith in Christ, they come aware of their inability to plead anything in their case. And when you think about it, it is an amazing thing that a man or a woman should put their trust for all eternity in a crucified Jewish criminal. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Well, who was the Lord Jesus? He was Jewish and he died as a criminal. He tied us a sinner's death. And you're asking me to place my whole destiny in this strange idea. Yes. What confidence do we have that anybody ever will? Our ability to articulate it? Not a, no way. The power of our proclamation? I have no confidence in that at all. But only in John 16 verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that is the mark of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, it is the Spirit's ministry in regard to judgment. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, brings home to men and women the fact of judgment, which is an abhorrent notion to men and women of every generation, but might I argue, especially today. No one wants to admit that there will be a payday one day. No one 
walking around this place this afternoon wants to admit that one day there will be a payday. No one wants to face up to the possibility of the books being balanced. No one likes this message, that he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. No one likes to hear. But it says Hebrews 9.27, And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It doesn't matter if we don't like it. It doesn't, we can't just say, well, that, is that your truth? This is true. Felix and Drusilla didn't like Paul's three-point sermon when he laboured to expound to them righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. But that is what the Spirit of God does. The Holy Spirit. Now Jesus is saying this to his disciples in the prospect of a historic incident, namely his departure, his death, resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And it is imperative that we understand John 16, John 16 in light of Acts 2. Before we launch from John 16 into our contemporary circumstances. Because Jesus was teaching these men in John 16 in the upper room the very truth which would set them on their feet on the streets of Jerusalem. I love this, brothers and sisters. I absolutely love this. Because Jesus was teaching the disciples in John 16 what they did in Acts 2. What he taught them in John 16, they did in Acts 2. So if you want to understand John 16, you need to read Acts 2 and discover what happened in the fulfilment of what Jesus is saying. In John 16, John 16, Jesus says, it is good for you that I go away so the Holy Spirit will come. You turn to Acts chapter 2, and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Singularly, uniquely, the event of Pentecost is as unique as the incarnation, the sinless life of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. It is unique. The day of Pentecost can no more be repeated than any other of these events in relationship to the life of Christ can be repeated, nor need to be repeated. So when we turn to Acts, and we find what Jesus said would happen, if you look at Acts 2, 22, Peter stands on his feet. Peter stands on his feet and says, Men of Israel, I would have loved to have been there. His voice, I'm sure, would have carried men of Israel. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Where did he get that authority from? Where did this faltering, blubbering, impulsive, denier of Christ suddenly get the power to stand on his feet in the middle of Jerusalem? He'd run away. He'd been chided by a servant girl. He denied Christ. He wept bitterly. He ran away. He said, I'm going to go fishing. I've had enough of this. 
How did he get on the streets of Jerusalem in fulfilment of the promise of Jesus? Jesus said, when I go, it will be fantastic because the Spirit will come. Do not go rushing out. You wait until he comes. When he comes, then you go. He came and Peter went. And what does he do? What is the central indication the Spirit had come? Christ-centred preaching. Christ-centred preaching. That's the evidence the Spirit has come. Because the ministry of the Spirit are the very truths that Jesus has explained. When the Spirit comes, this is what he will do. So we're not surprised when we read Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. He talks about his life and ministry. He talks about his death. He talks about his resurrection. In verse 33 to 36 of Acts 2, he talks about his exaltation. exaltation, And he wraps it up in Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what happens? The listeners are convicted of sin. He says in verse 23, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Spirit of God says to them, you know you did. And they're convicted in relationship to Christ's righteousness. 24, God raised him up, loosened the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And these had been the people going around saying, that is him. He's finished. It's over. We dealt with him. We hung him on a cross. We can go. We can close it up. The whole plan of redemptive history buried in a Palestinian tomb. And now they're on the streets of Jerusalem. And Peter stands up and he says, I want you to know about Jesus. And this is what Jesus did. And he says, furthermore, he is alive today. And the people who said, no, he is not, are now saying, yes, he is. How did that happen? Because of Peter's power of coercion? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And they were convicted in relationship to judgment. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And in his resurrection, he declared the condemnation of the Prince of Darkness, as Jesus had explained would happen. Now with that little survey, that little survey of Acts 2, I want you to see verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? How is it that in Acts 2.37, there was such a response. How was it? And furthermore, when will we find that kind of response? And furthermore, why do we not see this kind of response be mirrored in our gatherings? The cries of people, at least internally, when our sermons are finished. It's a hard and sorry thing to do. You preach, you preach, you preach, you preach. People sometimes come and say, that was wonderful. 
and all this and that. And have you ever thought about the next thing? But did you go away and fall on your face and say, God, just once come down and stir in the hearts of people and convict them of their sin? They don't believe in that. Convict them of the rightness of Christ. The only hope of righteousness. Confront them with the fact that judgment is a reality. So that they're saying at the end of it, I'm going to have to do something about this like in Acts 2.37. There must be someone I can talk to. There must be someone who can help me. But we are powerless. It is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. I think part of it has to do with the nature of the sermons proclaimed. Our sermons, I think, do have the more, far more of the introduction of verse 22. Men of Israel, men and women of Keswick, listen to this. And the first word out of our mouths is Jesus. Is Jesus. I have it in my Bible. Some, some churches have it on their, the pulpit. Sir, we would see Jesus. And the work of the Holy Spirit is a giant spotlight. First of all, throwing a giant spotlight on you and me to show us our sin. Those dark places that we don't want anyone to know about. A giant spotlight that exposes our sin. But then the giant spotlight so that we can see the glory of Christ. If the ministry of the Spirit of God is to take the things of Christ and make them known, then there needs to be Christ-centred sermons, Spirit-appointed preaching, and undergirding both of those, the earnest, genuine, humble, longing, crying prayers of the people of God. We don't, we don't want to personalise it too much. Well, I think we agree that this church for many years has endeavoured to preach Christ-centred sermons. Will we acknowledge that not on every occasion, but in some measure there is indication that the Spirit of God backs up the Christ-centred proclamation. So perhaps the issue is with our prayer lives. Not that by our prayers we cajole God into doing something that he doesn't want to do. But rather by our prayers we acknowledge our dependence on God for everything. We're dependent on him for everything. And we're saying to the Father in heaven, the preacher here is just a man, the message is largely the same. I've heard it before. I've heard it before. He is repetitive. He is boring. But we're asking that you convict people of the need of Christ. Convict those stony hearts of people who come and just sit. They couldn't care less. Defiance or deference or dismissiveness or contempt. But Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, would you convict stony hearts of sin. And I want to say to you that to the extent that we're prepared to take on that burden, that burden, that we fall on our face, we prostrate ourselves and cry that God by his Spirit would work. I think, I genuinely think, we have a legitimate right to expect. You see, not just ones or twos, 
but handfuls and clusters of unbelieving men and women becoming committed followers of Jesus Christ. I believe that. And I believe that we should be on our faces calling on the Holy Spirit of God to have mercy on sinners. The only reason we're here at all is that the Holy Spirit of God did a work in our hearts. It's not that I'm kinder or softer or better. No, no. If you knew my heart, I wouldn't be anywhere close here. Now don't get this wrong, because if I say to you, prayer is at the heart of it, and then you say, well, I guess it's just something we have to do. Ian Murray, in that great book on revival, said, God has chosen to make prayer a means of blessing, not so that the fulfilment of his purposes become dependent upon us, but rather to help us learn our absolute dependence on him. Don't you love that distinction, isn't that beautifully said? It's not dependent on us, but we learn we are absolutely rock-solid, 100% dependent on him. Wouldn't it be great if this church was full of prostrated people who are utterly dependent on him? He calls us to pray so that the fulfilment of his purpose doesn't lie dependent upon our prayers, but in our praying we learn our utter dependence on him. God has set up all of his redemptive purpose to see unbelieving men and women, boys and girls, convinced, convicted of sin, of righteousness and judgment to come. And when we pray, we don't make that happen, nor do we somehow cajole God into something that he never intended. But we align our wills with the will of God who sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Men and women might be raised from the dead, spiritually quickened and made to love and obey God and to serve him all their days. Jesus said to his disciples, But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is King James. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. What a challenge to us today. Living in a context where we tend to think that if we just do the right things, complete the procedures, we'll be fine. We can be smug in our good works and we can be sure in our answers. And we're everything except dependent on the Spirit of God to do what only God can do. Have you, when was the last time you laid on the floor of your private place, prostrated yourself before God and cried out to him? And if not, why not? Maybe because you're comfortable with the way things are. Maybe you're confident it will be handled by somebody else. That there's somebody else who's praying. There's somebody else who does that. When God breaks in, we'll all be on our faces. And then we'll be on our feet. And we won't be talking about what a wonderful preacher Peter was. But we'll be talking about what a wonderful saviour Jesus is. Do people come to Lake Road? And it is my prayer that they leave by saying... What a wonderful saviour 
is Jesus the Lord. That's what we long for. In closing, we read here that the focus of the Spirit's work is not to draw attention to himself, but to throw a spotlight on the sun. So you're in danger of somehow ignoring the Spirit. You're not in danger of ignoring the Spirit when you look fully on the face of Jesus Christ. Now, we may need more teaching on the Spirit, but when you're drawn to Christ, it is because of the Holy Spirit. We can't worship Christ without the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't want to be magnified in, except in so far that he points to Jesus Christ. He speaks what he hears, he declares what is given, and his mission was to glorify another. As we close, let me think about four things that we can ask as we think about the work of the Spirit in our life, in our church. Have you been truly born again? Is that evident in your life by the Holy of the Spirit of God? Secondly, ask God to show you your sin. <laughs> I found it to be the one prayer God always answers. And thirdly, ask God to show you the, excellence of the, the excellencies of Jesus. If you want to talk, walk in step with the Spirit, pray, Father, send the Spirit to show me my sin and show me more of the glory of Christ that I may see more of him. And then ask God specifically for more of the Holy Spirit of Jesus in your life. Remember what Jesus says. If we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Have you ever asked the Father for more of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you praying that every day? Lord, Give me more of the Holy Spirit in my life. The Father's greatest gift to you, what greater gift is there than the Spirit of the Father and the Son at work in your life? Ask God. He will surely grant you that request. May the Lord bless his word for his glory, but for our eternal good. Amen. with good news and we've heard the joyful sound Jesus saves would you stand together and sing with me
suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Go in peace. Please stay for some refreshments. I've been so used to not saying it, it's wonderful to be able to say, please join us for some fellowship at the back. <laughs>